Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hello, Kate. Hi, Hattie. Good to see you. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. We've got a great lineup in this podcast episode because our guest author is the phenomenally popular writer of historical fiction, Philippa Gregory. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when you told me the number of ratings she's had on Goodreads, more than a million and a half. And we'll be talking later on to one of the team from our library in Winchester who'll be giving us a recommendation from books they've read recently. Yes, and we've managed for the first time to meet up face to face. And how good it was to be back inside a library building and to see other people there choosing their next read. It was lovely. And as you'll hear from Joe in Winchester, our team couldn't be happier to have visitors back. So please do go and see them. You can find the opening days and times for your local library by checking our website. We'll be talking about other library updates later on in the episode. But for now, let's hear from our guest author, Philippa Gregory. She's the author of more than 30 historical novels, including 15 in her Tudor series. And that includes probably her best-known book, The Other Berlin Girl, which has now been filmed twice, once by the BBC and then with Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman. One of the ways her books stand out is that she really brings to life women in history whose personalities tend only to be recorded as wives or as mothers. Someone perhaps who's been used as diplomatic currency or just to give birth to the next in line of the throne. Philippa is well known for the amount of historical research she does for her writing. In fact, she started as a literary historian, getting a PhD in 18th century literature. And her new series of books started with the novel Tidelands, which was set in the marshy landscape of 17th century England. The second in this series, Dark Tides, is about to come out in paperback and picks up the family story in London 20 years later. Here's Kate talking to Philippa. The interview starts with Philippa reading a short piece from the start of the book. Midsummer Eve, 1670, London. The ramshackle warehouse was the wrong side of the river, the south side, where the buildings jostled for space and the little boats unloaded pocket-sized cargoes for scant profit. The wealth of London passed them by, sailing upstream to the half-built new custom house, its cream stone facade set square onto the fast-flowing river, as if it would tax every drop of the roiling, dirty water. The greatest ships, towed by eager barges, glided past the little wharves as if the keys were nothing but flotsam, sticks and cobbles, rotting as they stood. Twice a day, even the tide deserted them, leaving banks of stinking mud and piers of weedy ramps rising like old bones from the water. The warehouse and all the others leaning against it, like carelessly shelved books, shuddering along the bank towards the dark channel at the side, were hungry for the wealth that had sailed in with the new king in the ship that had once been Oliver Cromwell's into the country that had once been free. These poor merchants, scraping a living from the river trade, heard all about the new king and his glorious court at Whitehall, but they gained nothing from his return. They saw him only once as he sailed by the royal pennants flying fore and aft, once and never again 
not down here, not on the south side of the river, on the east side of the town. This was never a place that people visited. It was a place that people left, not a place that ever saw a grand carriage nor a fine horse. And thank, thank you, you so much for joining me on the Love Your Library podcast. We really appreciate having you. Your new book, well, it's just about to come out in paperback, Dark Tides. It's the follow-up to your hugely successful book, Tidelands, which was set around the Civil War and focused on Eleanor and her family. And this one takes the reader on about 20 years to when Charles II has been restored to the throne. So could you tell us a bit more about what's happened to Eleanor and her daughter Alice in the meantime? Where do we find them and the rest of the family in 1670? Well, we find them in a way, what I wanted to write was a book which would stand completely alone. So you could start there and indeed stop there if you want. But we find them in the warehouse that I just described and they're struggling to make a living, but they are making a living and they get deliveries of small goods, heavy goods from their former home in Sussex and from the Kent coast. And uh, you can actually, if you walk down to the Thames in London on the south side of the river today and you look, go right to the edge of the riverbank, you can see these structures called camp sheds, which is where people would ground the barges at low tide, unload them, and then the high tide would lift them off and float them away again. So the architecture of their lives is still there. Fascinatingly, the warehouses are, of course, now extremely expensive, chic flats, but the position of them is as it was then. Uh, And into this tough life, two women entrepreneurs running a small warehouse with small deliveries, a small quayside in front, which takes the goods in and horse and a cart that delivers the goods around to uh, retail around London. Into this life comes firstly a former lover who is looking for his children that he believes they have taken. And then immediately after he arrives, a carriage draws up on the quayside. The carriage door opens and all Alice can see from the uh, warehouse window is this beautiful black silk gown tumbling down the steps of the carriage, a pair of black silk shoes as this unknown woman, richly dressed, walks into the warehouse. And Alice goes, who on earth is that? And I have to say, when I was writing it, I went, who on earth is this? And it, I mean, and who it is, is the so-called widow of the son of the warehouse from Venice. And she's come to make her fortune and to tell them that he's dead. And she was a complete arrival. I hadn't planned her into the story. She arrived literally to surprise Alice and to surprise me. And it was such a delight. It was just, she's such a great character to write. And it was such a delight to get to the point, which sometimes happens in novels, if you're very lucky, that the whole story just takes off. You're not planning it anymore. You're not on the plan. If there was a plan, you're not on it. Genuine fictional creation has just walked in. And all you can do is hold on tight. I was going to ask you a bit about uh, Livia in a minute, but I just wanted to step back for a moment and say, well, well, you're very well known and and celebrated for your historical fiction, which I think does help people fall in love with historic periods, especially perhaps the Tudor period. But this series is quite different. Firstly, that it focuses not on royalty, but on very hard-working women around these wharves of London, but also it's a later period in history. So was there something in particular that drew you to turn to this subject? 
Yes, I wanted to write about not royal women, and I wanted to write a fiction, not not a fictionalized biography. So I felt free for the first time in a long time to create characters, and I really wanted them to be at. Uh, I wanted them to be entrepreneurs and working women, and I wanted them to enjoy substantial success. And so that really had to be not the medieval period where women were successful, but it was the very exceptional woman. Uh, what I wanted was women who could plausibly join the expanding trade uh, of England, which, which is pre-empire, and it really takes off in this century. So that really rooted me there. And the other thing is I wanted to write also about the ownership of the land and about ideas about social justice and about democracy in the historical context. And that really, I think, starts powerfully in England with the Cromwell Revolution, uh, when we actually get rid of the monarch for a generation. And in doing so, change the face of English politics forever. Charles II is restored, but it's never the same again. And indeed, the Stuart line is thrown out again, just on his death. So it's it's a time that England becomes genuinely radical and genuinely revolutionary. And one of the one of the readings of history, which I disagree with, basically says is that England reverts to its natural state, which is a sort of democratic a monarchy with democratic limits. And that's not a natural state. That's actually fought, fought passionately against the tyranny of kings. And it's remarkable that England does it. And we do it by starting from a completely Republican position. That's interesting. And I will. I was going to talk to you a bit about uh, Venice, which is a central part of the plot later on in the book. But you can see perhaps quite a contrast between the domination of the Doge in Venice compared with uh, with what you're saying is perhaps going on in, in England at the time? Well, uh, yes. I mean, what you have in, in Venice is a long-standing republic, which is an incredible tyranny of elected officials and of uh, the top families. So just by not having a king does not save you from the danger of tyranny or from a very, very rigid aristocracy. Then similarly, and major part of the novel is set in New England, uh, where you have very democratic settler society, but they are pushing up against an extremely democratic, completely rural, at one with the environment, indigenous society. So the question of how people take power and what they do with it is really a serious core to the novel, which actually examines in a, I hope, much more entertaining way, people's individual lives. It's not a political history novel, but the political history is is the background. I've really enjoyed these three very different locations in the book. There's St Saviour's Dock, where the mother and daughter live, uh, and that's just to the east of Tower Bridge. I mean, you were talking about you can still see the architecture there now. I was in on Google Street View having a look around to see what it's like. And, and then there's this Hadley, the small town in New England, where Ned, the, the son and the brother, is living, working as a ferryman. And, and then finally Venice, as I say, which plays a key role in the later part of the story. And all these locations were fascinating to have a glimpse of what life was like in the 17th century. If I could take one or two of them in turn, 
and the detail about what life, day-to-day -day life was like as an early settler in New England, bartering for food and protecting yourself against the weather. That was extraordinary to hear and, and you do go in to talk about the detail of that. So how did you go about, and this is a question you must get asked all the time, but the research for that part of the book to get that right because it's so authentic. It starts with reading. So I read, uh, there's a book list in the back of the book. You will see I read literally hundreds of books and I often correspond with the authors if there's a detail that I don't understand. And then in addition to that, I, I made a research trip to Hadley and uh, I was hosted by the historians at the town, Historic Deerfield, which is just blessedly just up the road, which is an absolute centre of American history and history research. And I spent the day with them talking about settler lives and the literally the details of the houses and, you know, whether there was a cellar where the Republicans, the old Republicans would be hidden with people who have spent their lives doing this research. I mean, it was a terrific privilege. I made friends with uh, Professor Peter Thomas, who is an expert in this period of colonial America and corresponded with him throughout the writing of the book and indeed sent him a proof copy and took his uh, advice on the proof copy. One should always say the mistakes are mine, not his. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's just a terrific privilege to be in a situation where I can literally call up historians and say, I'm working on this. And they go like, oh, how interesting. Oh, you know, good. Uh, so that was Hadley. And then the other thing which was really remarkable about the research for that was to go to the Pequot Museum, which is a huge uh, museum, the best I know in America about indigenous peoples, of course, to the Washington Museum also, and to spend some time with the Pocanoquot people who took me to, to their tribal lands and talked to me about their history, literally in the place where it took place. I mean, just for a novelist, a gift, and for one person to another, a terrific gift of, in a sense, authentic truth. So mm. we're talking about their life and their history as they remember it, because it, so much of it is still oral history. It's still not written down, mm. uh, you know, and that's a privilege. You can only get if people are prepared to share their history with you. We mentioned uh, Venice with this idea of everybody being watched and reported on. It reminded me of accounts of countries under communism. And was that a feeling you were keen to capture? Um, I wasn't thinking about modern surveillance really at all. It's just so much part of the Venetian experience. Yeah. And it's how they kept this very tiny but outstandingly wealthy little republic safe amid a great deal of external anarchy and mostly royalty and you know a lot of invading armies and a lot of conflicts over succession you know they do it by met by every citizen as a spy yeah. and they spy on each other and of course it's an immensely effective way to uh, control a civilian population and the venetians do the trade you know what they get is this incredible prosperity far and away wealthier than anywhere in Europe and the chance to make enormous amounts of money and to enjoy spending enormous amounts of money because they don't, they're not supporting an aristocracy which is imposed upon them in the sense it's self-made. Terrifying way to live though with everyone spying on everyone else and always the danger you could be crossing the bridge of size and into the prison. Absolutely, yeah. the, the constant danger of that, yes.
as you've said, there's a new character introduced in this book, this this beautiful young Italian woman called Livia, or to give her her full title, the noble Donna Darici. I'm so glad you said that she sort of appeared in the book like that, because she is this fascinating creature, not only to the other people in the story that she just entrances, but also to the readers, I'm sure. And it sounds like you had a really good time writing this about this bewitching woman. Is that the case? Well, she's wonderful because she's bad. And it's such a pleasure to allow yourself to write about a thoroughly bad woman. I mean, in the case of my heroine, Eleanor and her daughter, Alice, these are good women who are up against horrendous circumstances and do the best they can. And it was such a holiday to write about a woman who is completely self-serving. She has very little interest in anybody's feelings. She doesn't even love her child very much. What she's determined to do is to make a massive social leap in English society and uh, find herself in, you know, extraordinary wealth. And the other pleasure of the novel, if I can say without it being a spoiler, I think I can, is that she isn't punished. You know, one of the really tedious things about (laughs) traditional fictions about bad women is that they don't succeed well she jolly well does and you know like you're not supposed to like her but you are supposed to in a sense stand back aghast as she carves her way through this novel lying entirely when when the mood takes her I mean she's completely unscrupulous and it's such fun to write a bad person I mean, in some ways, though, she's an example, perhaps, of what women at those times are sort of pressed into doing to have some kind of agency or control over their destiny uh, before they had the same kind of rights as, as we do today. And even though, yes, she's she does these awful things, there was a bit of me that had some sympathy with the situation she was in. It seemed to be even worse for women from in Venice than it was in England at the time. I've heard you say before that no woman would want to live before 1960. Could you tell me a bit more about what you mean by this and whether you think we should have any sympathy with Livia for that reason? Well, to deal with Livia first, yes, I do think that we should see Livia as everybody is, as a product of their circumstances. And if there is, if it is very, very hard to better your lot as an individual in society legitimately, obviously people of great energy and commitment to their improvement are going to cut corners and she cuts corners. And, you know, in a sense, one of the things that strike me about, for instance, the oppression of women is that if you enslave women, you know, what you're going to get is nasty slave revolts and covert slave actions. And that's, you know, in a sense, I believe that it would be better to give social justice to everybody, a a level playing field, and then you would find people competing far more fairly. If you start off with a massive unfair disadvantage, you're not going to necessarily play by Queensbury rules. Mm. So you're absolutely right to have a sneaking admiration for Olivia as doing maybe the, the sort of things that we would do if we dared, you know, that everybody who wants to improve their position in life starts off trying to do it the right way but women like Livia don't accept defeat and that's quite thrilling I think the question of when should you when should you be born if you could arrange to be born comes very much out of one of the difficulties of the genre of historical fiction is that people some 
authors write it as if the past was particularly nice, was particularly charming. So you get lovely clothes and you get to ride around on horses and you get to ride in a carriage and maybe you get to be Queen of England. And there's this kind of rosy glow to the past, which I have, you know, as a historian, I know to be untrue and I have never subscribed to. Yes, there are, of course, lovely days in pastoral England prior to industrialization. Yes, and there are lovely clothes, but I say that no woman should choose to be born in the past prior to 1860, the Married Woman's Property Act, after which you could leave your husband and take the fortune you had brought to the marriage with you. He didn't take it off you automatically. So that means that women can be rich. Before then, a wife can't be rich. And if you have any sense, you won't be born into England before about 1960, because then you have genuinely secure, manageable contraception. And at any time before that, you can get pregnant if you have sex. And at, in centuries before that, you will probably die. Because if you don't have a husband to look after you, then uh, it's very, very unlikely that you'll get through a pregnancy and the birth of an illegitimate child without support. So my advice really is, is if you possibly can arrange when you're married, now or the future. Yes, you can be very romantic about it, but when it comes down to it, that's sensible advice. As you were saying, while the main characters in this book are fictional, I really enjoyed the way that their lives interweaved with real historical people, particularly in the case of the two men who were on the run and then hiding out in New England, who'd been involved with the execution of Charles I. Ned comes into contact with them a fair bit, and also about the Native American chief, King Philip, and the lead up to the wars. And this was all stuff I knew nothing about before and had me diving into the internet to find out more. So is this something we can hope to read more about in your forthcoming books? Yes, the upcoming books, we're going to stay with Pocanocot history, which Ned leaves as the King Philip's War is starting. And it's a very, very interesting Indigenous American people's war against the settlers because it looks for the first five years as if they're going to win. And indeed, the English settlement is so threatened that there's a widespread belief that people will just get back in boats and go back to England, that the settlement of America won't happen. And that's one of those sort of what if moments in history when you go like, wow, if if the war had continued as it started, then would we not have had the English settling America? I mean, certainly you'd have had the Spanish uh, still settling South America and then undoubtedly extending up through on the other coast, on the West Coast. Uh, and undoubtedly you would have had the French and the Dutch settling if the English would push back. But there's just that moment where you go like, history could have been very, very different at that point. And of course, for the Pocanocot, the their ultimate defeat in that war led to their disappearance as a people. They were so substantially executed and killed in battles and after unjustly. And the settlers abolished their name. So they were they were given another name and you won't you often won't find them in histories under their true name. And it's I mean it's only now when I think that we are so conscious of genocide that we realise what a blow that is to a people. And so that's why, that's one of the reasons why they were very happy that I should write the novel, because in a sense, it restores the name to the history books. So yes, there's going to be more about the Pocanocot people, 
in the years of their terrible defeat. And then hopefully further down in later novels, should there be later novels, there'll be something about their revival. Uh, and so that's a, a good time really to ask about what you are working on at the moment. Um, so presumably this means that we're going to be hearing more about the Riki family. I certainly want to hear what happens next, not just out in New England, but also to hear what happens next with Livia and to, to Sarah as well, the granddaughter of Eleanor. Are you working on that at the moment? I am. Uh, I've been delayed for various reasons, but I am uh, planning that it shall come out autumn next year. And it will be about the family and they're going to be a global trading family. So they're going to be other locations as well and other family members drawn into it. But all of those people that you describe are going are part of this family, which is going to expand both in terms of members, uh, interconnection and expand globally. They are, they are in a way a family that is going to exemplify the expansion of mm. the England mercantile empire and then ultimately the English colonial empire. Can I finally ask you something that I always ask our guest authors, and, and that's how you feel about public libraries. It's absolutely fine if you don't have any strong <laughs> feelings one way or another. <laughs> um, I have extremely strong feelings and I'm on the record of being extremely <laughs> passionate about public libraries. Yeah. I read all my first books in a library. I had a mother who was very sporty and every Saturday she would go onto the tennis court at her club for the whole of Saturday afternoon and she would give me sixpence to go to the sweet shop and buy some sweets and then I'd go to the library and I would read one book in the afternoon while I was in the library and then I would bring the maximum I was allowed home which was three home. And that was a library in Clifton, Bristol, where we then lived. And since then, I've worked in university libraries and national libraries and little local libraries. And I just think they are the lifeblood of the intellectual nation. I know I'm speaking to the converted here, but I cannot say how strongly it's like. It's like galleries or museums or concert halls or places to watch ballet and opera. Where else are you going to have the life of literature preserved and kept for everybody. Uh, bookshops are tremendously important, but you have to buy the books. We have to have our literature freely available to our children and ourselves. Otherwise, we might as well not have bothered writing. I really enjoyed talking to Philippa. She's such an intelligent woman with some, with some really interesting perspectives that she threads throughout her books. And I love her idea that as a woman, you really wouldn't want to be born before 1960. And there's a bit of a link from her book, Dark Tides, to the book recommendation from our library team this episode. Yes, I was really struck at the time by the similarity of the atmosphere of surveillance in, in Venice in the 17th century to one of the central themes of Joe's recommended book. So let's hear what we talked about when we met up with Joe to chat about her choice of book. We're now joined by Joe Adams, one of our team at our library in Winchester. In fact, we're sitting in the children's section of the library at Winchester, and it's such a joy to be back here. Um, so you'll notice it's a little bit echoey, 
You might, we haven't got any children in here at the moment, but if you hear running footsteps and noise, it might be, uh, might be a young visitor coming to join us. We also, with some building work going on outside, so if you hear a drill or hammering every so often, um, sorry about that, but that's all part of the atmosphere here at the library. The authentic library experience. What could be better? Exactly. So, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know uh, I know the, the library here at the Winchester Discovery Centre very well, as two of my children practically grew up here. It, it's a really beautiful building in the city's old corn exchange. And it must be great to have visitors back. Yes, it's lovely. It's been incredibly quiet and it's it's just been it's been lovely to have people in and more people to talk to and more going on. It's not the same without, uh, no. without people here. So so you've chosen the Museum of Bro- Broken Promises by the writer Elizabeth Buchan. Buchan is the same name as the 39 Steps, John Buchan, and it's it's a relation of her husband. So there is a connection ah. with a, a classic author. Um, so would you tell us a bit about the book? what it's about, what's its basic premise? It's a love story really, at its core it is a love story. There's two sort of stories to it. We start out in Paris where our character Law is, she's running the Museum of Broken Promises, which is a museum where people bring in their bits and pieces, things from promises they've had in their lives that have been broken. So it's all about, I guess, betrayals really. It's quite a sad sounding museum, but, but it's a very interesting idea. And it kind of sets the story up really nicely because then you you go back to Prague in 1985, I think, and you find out all about her broken promise and, and what happened. So it, it sets the story up really nicely. But the, the main story, sort of the, the linear beginning, the middle and the end, really is set in communist Czechoslovakia in Prague in 1985 and it's the story of law and this man Thomas that she meets who's a little bit of a a political activist. Mm, mm. And I think we've had a few of these like dual timeline stories on the podcast recently especially and it always makes for an interesting question so we don't just have the dual timelines but we've got the dual cities. Do you think that this past and present Uh, there and here structure adds a lot to the book do you think it makes for an interesting structure I did I think especially because you have sort of contemporary Paris where Laura is now so I suppose she must be in her 50s maybe at, at that point and then it takes you back to when she's maybe an older teenager on her early 20s in Prague yeah the sort of these two you've got these two places like Prague you've got Paris and that tie between the, the naivety of the past and the almost cynicism or world weariness of the present really comes through and you can see that in the contrast between the two locations. It can be that a two t- or different time periods mm. can be a bit confusing at least to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a very basic way that's often it's quite tantalising because you know from the what's talked about in the present that something has happened in the past. So it's a way of pulling you in to the story. If Elizabeth Buchan had just told the story of Law and Thomas, I think it would have lost something. I think having having Paris, having now, having the museum, having this this sort of collection of betrayals, I think it definitely does it definitely does bring something to book to be able to look at look at the story from sort of outside. It's almost like a good gateway into the history of that time period. I, I always find that with books actually. You can use them as keys to, to different areas and of the world and different periods of history. So I find 
that element, exploring these kind of themes, really interesting. But as you mentioned earlier, it, it's really a love story or, or maybe um, a series of different relationships. So how do you think that Elizabeth Buchan dealt with the relationships between Laura and Thomas, but also with Laura and Petter as well? I think the relationship with Thomas is, I thought it was a really lovely relationship and that there's obviously this, this really strong connection where it's quite, it contrasts quite a lot with Peter because he, all the way through, it feels like a much more uncomfortable relationship where she doesn't know when they're in Prague, she doesn't know sort of who he is or what he's doing. She knows that she's there to look after the children, but she doesn't really know his place in the grand scheme of things or what what her place is, is in relation to what he's actually doing. And then they meet up again very briefly in Berlin, not long after communism has been overthrown in, in Czechoslovakia. And it's a very sort, it's a very uncomfortable situation that she finds herself in. Now, I do think it sounds like it would, would just, like the tension of constantly being under surveillance is such a like, heart racing concept at points, isn't it? And for me, it definitely added an element to the book that I, I enjoyed. Did you think it was good? Yeah, it was it was interesting in a way because usually usually books that have sort of communist or Soviet themes tend to end up being spy books. So it was quite interesting to have that kind of omnipresent, oppressive feeling in a story that was a love story, but it didn't feel like it didn't feel like those two things were sort of shoehorned together. It did feel quite natural. You have a lot of empathy for her when she's going through this relationship and it's sort of like a first love relationship and you you don't want it to end badly you want everything to be be fantastic but some of the things that that happen in the book we were kind of saying well could I hand on heart say that if I wasn't in this situation or that situation would I have done anything differently and I don't know because I don't think unless you're in that kind of it's a very stressed state to be in I suppose the whole the whole thing about being watched all the time you must be just be stressed all the time and you can't I don't think you can you were doing those situations I liked her I liked her as a character mm. Thomas the, the the dissident the activist he's obviously going to be under surveillance but even Peter who's mm. who's up there he's a member of the party he's he's still being watched because mm. it is one of those things that you're not only as you say being watched but you're also there's pressure on people to to watch other mm. people as well mm. and that that kind of yeah. Betrayal of people all the time is really uncomfortable. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm thinking back to my uh, uni days and all the like dystopian fiction, like 1984, mm. Brave New World. Um, there's a Russian uh, book that I really like called We, and it, it's the exact same thing. You're sort of the most compliant people to these kinds of regimes being followed, but that's you know complete fiction. It's it's in a completely imagined world, whereas this is rooted in mm. history, and that's almost even scarier, isn't it? So the central theme of the book sounds quite bitter, uh, you know, the Museum of Broken Promises with all these displayed artefacts being about, see, look what he did to me kind of, kind of stuff. But there's something quite peaceful in resolving about its intentions. At one point, Law says, the museum offers a space to begin again. And that kind of resolution of the Broken Promises comes out in, as a theme. There's a lot of emotion in the book altogether. 
and how do you think that she dealt with that kind of concept of the emotions being brought to the surface and then resolved? Yes, I think just as a as a story arc, I think she had to find some kind of peace with her with herself and and the situation that she found herself in. And as we start in the museum and go back to Prague, we then finish in the museum and we finish in present day. Mm. She does seem to find some kind of peace with with having told her story and and how things end up. When you recommended this, I thought, I know that name. And I, re- and I have read her books before. And the one of them that she's probably the most famous for is, the, um, is a book called The Revenge of the Middle-Aged Woman, which, again, sounds like it's going to be really bitter, nasty mm. revenge. But it isn't. It's totally the opposite. In fact, it's, it's all about kind of coming to terms when somebody has betrayed you is dealing with that in a positive way. And I kind of felt this had a, a similar kind of feeling that people weren't putting these artefacts in the museum to say, you know, look how dreadful this was, but to kind of say, right, I'm going to put it there and this is me accepting mm. that this has happened and now I'm moving on. It, it's interesting that she's, she's taken this theme that could be quite bitter and actually turned it into something that's quite redemptive. There must be something in her life at some point there must be something that she would put in this museum. Yes. Like, the book made me think, well, what would I donate to the museum? And I think, I think I've got a jumper that I would donate to the museum, but I'm not going to tell you why. Ooh, well, do mysterious. you know, I was doing exactly the same thing. What would I put in? And I also thought, if I did put in an object and told my story, it would kind of feel like the weight had been lifted it's off my shoulders. Catharsis, isn't yeah. it? It's a bit of like... Yeah. It's an emotional yeah. letting go as well yeah. as a physical yeah. letting go of that, exactly. that object. That was Hattie and I talking to Joe at the library in Winchester about Elizabeth Buchan's book, The Museum of Broken Promises. It was great to be back inside a library again where life is getting back to normal, step by step and in line with government guidelines. In fact, on the 24th of June, we're celebrating Harry Potter book night with a themed quiz. And this year you can take part by Zoom from the comfort of home or you can come along to the Winchester Discovery Centre and join in in person. Take a look at our library blog to find out all the details. I love that they're giving people the option to join in person or online. That's really good. And um, it should be fun because apparently wizard costumes are encouraged. We've also got magazines back on our shelves, which is also great news. Yeah, if you're a fan of magazines, anything from good housekeeping to what car, you can borrow the latest edition from the library for seven days for free. You'll find our libraries have a pretty impressive choice of magazine titles, so do take a look next time you're visiting. But the big event for children this summer is going to be the Summer Reading Challenge, of course, which kicks off on Saturday the 3rd of July. Once again, this is something you can take part in online or inside your local library, with stickers and certificates to collect and a medal to earn. We'll be counting down to launch day on the Kids Zone section of our website, so keep a lookout online and on our social media. Now, we always like to flag up a few titles included in our unlimited collection on BorrowBox for the month. These are ebooks and audiobooks which you don't have to wait to download to read or listen to. Even if loads of other people have borrowed them, you'll find the full list on our podcast show notes. This month, there's a Philippa Gregory audiobook on the list. It's the first of her Wideacre trilogy, set in the 18th century. There's also The Pact by Amy Haydenrich, which is all about what happens when a prank among a group of work colleagues leads to murder. 
Now, it sounds almost exactly the same kind of plot, though a very different setting, from the recent BBC drama, so if you enjoyed that, you might enjoy this as an audiobook or ebook. We've also got the classic 1984 by George Orwell as an audiobook, so if that's been on your reading list for a while, it's a good opportunity to download and take a listen. Oh, I'm definitely going to dip into that one. The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil is also on the list, and that's the choice from our Facebook book club for June. The novel is set in London in the mid-19th century and is about a young woman, Iris, who's determined to become an artist. I believe that the author has agreed to answer our book club members' questions. So download it as an audiobook, read by Tuppence Middleton, or as an ebook, and join the conversation through our Facebook group. That's it for our pick of Borrow Box for the month. We'll include the full list of unlimited titles on our show notes. Finally, I wanted to mention one of the ways we're marking Pride Month in June with a collection of books on BorrowBox which you can add to your LGBTQ reading list. You'll find out more in our special Pride Month blog. And thanks once again to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.